It's your boy Seth Harwood, still at the borderlands of my faith, still at the hinterlands of devotion. This is episode 14, chapters 27 and 28, narrated by Carlos Mendoza. Thank you for being here. Let's roll into it. So more let go. It's your boy Seth Harwood bringing you as much protein as an egg back in effect. SethHarwood.com, WriteWithSeth.com, and of course, Patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. I'd love to hear from you. Seth Harwood here. Please forgive the long intro. Well, you know how it is. Things to say, places to wonder about, stuff going on. What can I tell you? It's been a long time for me to get this whole thing done. And for that, what can I say, man? This has been one crazy year of 2020. You know that. I know that. When I started out doing this podcast thing at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought, oh, look at all this time on my hands now that I'm not going anywhere. I could do this weekly. I could do that. I could, you know how the rest goes. Life changes. Things take up space. We all adapt. Now it's hard to imagine ever going back to that much, being out in the world and doing all those things. And probably something like that will happen again. But I will say that I've been very glad to be at home for this period of COVID uh, with my wife and my daughter, the two workmates who I love more than any other. really feels like a privilege to be at home with them every day in the house, um, spending more time with them, seeing my daughter, helping her with her schoolwork. And I've been working on other projects, my writing, coaching, Uh, ground magazine, um, but maybe working less than I was in the past and working better or just being more discerning about pieces that I choose. Today, I grabbed the computer that I record my podcast on and brought it up from the basement. So I'm actually above ground looking at the sun as I record this. 
And you know what? It makes a big difference. It really does. I tell you what, it sure does. So I think it's time for us to have a toast. Let's have a toast for the douchebags. Let's have a toast for the assholes. Let's have a toast for the scumbags. Every one of them that I know. Let's have a toast for the jerk offs. Gotta never take work off. Maybe I got a plan. Run away fast as you can. Now, admittedly, I don't know where I'm going with this whole thing. I'm here. I'm ready to bring you chapters 27 and 28 that have graciously, graciously been recorded by Carlos Mendoza. I think they're pretty exciting. I was reviewing some of the transcripts earlier. In 26, chapters 25 and 26, which came out separately, uh, too distracted to put together a full episode, didn't want to hang out in the basement, is the excuse that I would say there. Um, Artemis Kellogg and Emily Plinko drove down to the desert. First, there was an interlude where Bainbridge McGee went on a bender with Big Win in Las Vegas. Then, the bender happened because uh, McGee finished... The Falling People, which was his masterpiece uh, that takes place on 9-11. This is the real reason why I wanted to get into this during the pandemic. At the very beginning, I thought there was a real connection between 9-11 and what was going on with us during the pandemic. Uh, Of course, this year, 2020, has turned into the three pandemics of 2020. The pandemics of covid pandemic of uh, race in America slash George Floyd slash Black Lives Matter and the pandemic of political insanity. Uh, So it's been a hell of a year and pretty much uh, 9-11 being somewhat of the inspiration for as much protein as an egg, 9-11 has kind of been blown out of the water by all the things that have gone on here, and I don't know what to tell you about that, but this was the the seed. So then uh, Plinko and Kellogg drive down to the desert to hook up with Brainbridge McGee. It's a big deal. They get down there. Uh, they meet McGee in their Ford Taurus, and uh, it's exciting. They get to McGee's house, and McGee is about to present Artemis Kellogg with his copy, his first draft of the Falling People manuscript when we open up chapter 27. So let's get right into that. I've stalled you long enough, and um, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you listening. And honestly, if you're with me this far, I would love to hear what you think. I like this book. I have more thoughts on it after the episode. And let's jump right in. Chapter 27 That night, after an impressive dinner of Brazilian churrascaria and a quick mandatory visit to the nest to see cougars prowling in their natural habitat, our foursome returned to McGee's lovely home. After a drink or two, Sandy got in her car and drove home. Shortly after, 
Emily Plinko excused herself to go off to sleep. McGee had a little hacienda on his property, which was where Artemis Kellogg and Emily Plinko would sleep. All the arrangements were really quite nice. Once he and Kellogg were alone, McGee got out the triple aquamaroon labeled Johnny Walker and poured them each a snoot. Neat. He clinked their glasses together. You ready? Kellogg nodded. I've been ready. McGee smiled. That's good. I've got it right here. Underneath the glass coffee table, which was covered in magazines, was a small shelf. McGee reached down to that shelf right then and pulled out the first and only printed manuscript of The Falling People. Here it is, he said. That looks big. It is, but not oppressively. It is only so big as to be perfectly satisfying. Right when it needs to end is where it does. Just where you'd want it to. McGee handed the oppressive stack of pages to Kellogg. This is my masterpiece. For this year? McGee stuck out his lower lip and shook his head side to side gravely. No. This is, I believe, my masterpiece for life. So far, I mean. It's possible that I could do better next year, but you never know. He nodded. Kellogg felt he looked satisfied. McGee let go of the manuscript. It was now in Kellogg's hands alone. McGee said, There it is. You're my reader. Artemis Kellogg had a burning question. Did you get the idea of saying masterpiece like this from your father? No. Tell you the truth, I got very little from my father other than a love of books and red lobster. Those two things. He was really kind of a miserable bastard all the way up until the end. Really? McGee nodded. He knocked the back of the last of his snoot and poured himself another. Really? Even after the Nobel Prize? Then McGee stood up. I'm going to leave you now, young man, to do what you want with this. He gestured toward the manuscript with his snoot. I'm shuffling off to bed. We'll talk more in the morning, all right? Kellogg nodded. He felt the weight of the manuscript on his knees and in his hands and the weight of a huge expectation pressing down on him. I'll do my best, he said. It's okay, McGee said. It's really out of both our hands now. We're just vessels in this world. One day we'll see the fourth dimension and there we'll see all the wiring behind everything and how it works. For now, just know that I'm very happy to have you here with me in La Quinta. You and Emily make a gorgeous couple, and I'm happy to know you both. You're doing all the right things. As for your writing... He trailed off, and Kellogg perked up. Just stay true to yourself. That's the best any of us can ever do. With that, McGee tousled Kellogg's hair. He couldn't resist, and made his way off to bed. He left the living room, and shortly after, Kellogg heard a door close in a different part of the house. He set the stack of papers down next to him on the couch and breathed a deep sigh. Just to put them out of his hands relieved a weight. He was up to reading the book, up to the task, but he needed a minute to collect himself. The day had so far been a very heady and impressive one. Kellogg put down his snoot and stood to walk around the room. He touched the gigantic television set on the wall, ran his fingers along McGee's shelves of books, looking at the brilliant first editions of all his works, many of which were now collector's items. What he wouldn't do to have some of those editions, Kellogg thought. He went to the awards on McGee's shelves, the Nebulas for Best Novel, all three of them, and for the Best First Novel, 
a Penn Faulkner Award, Penn Hemingway, and two Edgars. All these gleamed with artistic integrity. There they all were, next to a gold medal from Literary Deathmatch, an Oscar for screenwriting, and a daytime Emmy. Kellogg stepped back from the glow of all the hardware and took a deep breath. He knew what he had to do and why he was here. It was time to read the book. Emily Plinko lay on the king-size bed in Bainbridge McGee's hacienda, listening to the sounds of the cicadas and the Home Depot gargoyles outside in the cool night air. That was one thing you could give the desert, she thought. At least it got cooler at night. She was impressed with McGee, so far, and happy she had come along for the trip. This world of writers was really quite odd, she realized. All a game of confidence, bluster, great effort, and minimal gain. That's what she thought before seeing McGee's house in Coral Gables and his hacienda. You could almost forget the world of desert and unhappy brown people outside the walls from where she lay. Almost. She felt far from Mankato and far from her family and friends, transplanted to a world very different from the Midwest, as if she had landed on the moon. The desert here in Southern California did resemble the moon in places, but not in the same way as the firebombed Dresden, and to Billy Pilgrim. Not at all. She had been reading Slaughterhouse-Five since the night Kellogg introduced her to Kilgore Trout's books, and something in them had prompted her to revisit Vonnegut. She adored his work for a sense of humor and wry political commentary. He floated her boat. The sense of Dresden in peril, Billy Pilgrim coming out into the city and seeing all the destruction, comparing its drifts of rubble to the moon, captivated her. What she didn't yet know was that the Falling People starred Billy Pilgrim as well. She had no idea that, as she picked up her faded paperback copy of Slaughterhouse-Five from Dog-Eared Books on Valencia, her boyfriend and love, Artemis Kellogg, was reading about Billy Pilgrim as well in the new book by Bainbridge McGee. She had no idea there was a new book starring Billy Pilgrim. If she had known this, she would have been very excited indeed. Almost as happy, it turned out, as Artemis Kellogg was right then. He had just finished the third chapter of The Falling People and was already beginning to realize the quality and breadth of McGee's new work. He could see how it touched on all the things he had been hoping to express himself about the importance of September 11th and television to the United States in the new century. It was pushing all his buttons, touching all his bases, he felt like his mind was held carefully in the hands of a great master. He just wanted to listen, to read. He wanted the book to never end. Five pictures in my email. I sent this bitch a picture of my dick. I don't know what it is. Chapter 28 It was just after six in the morning when Artemis Kellogg finished the last page of The Falling People. He had foregone his power of fast reading, to luxuriate in the novel. He had spent the night in euphoric wakefulness, marinating in McGee's new masterpiece without coffee. And this was what it was, he now knew. A masterpiece. The latest and maybe greatest edition in the category Great American Novel. Everyone else was still asleep. He went to the cabinet and pulled out a box of McGee's cashy cereal and poured himself a bowl. He wanted to start drinking coffee and needed something to buffer his stomach. He also wanted to start his day with as much protein as an egg, as the box of cereal promised. 
Whether it actually contained this or not was anybody's guess. Either way, it was a good new breed advertising lie that got people to buy Kashi. McGee had a very fancy coffee maker on his counter that Kellogg stared at for a while, until he was sure he couldn't figure it out by himself. Luckily, at just the moment that he started eating his kashi and consuming helpful amounts of protein, Bainbridge McGee walked into the kitchen wanting coffee himself. This was really very fortunate for them both. Listen, Sandy Sonnenfeld was still sleeping in McGee's bed. She had snuck into his bedroom through the sliding glass door off the patio while he slept. She was always sneaking in like this, which was why McGee kept forgetting when she slept over. Emily Plinko still slept on the king-size bed in the hacienda. She had missed the comfort of Artemis Kellogg sleeping next to her, even if she hadn't woken up once to notice. Kellogg hummed his approval as McGee got out a bag of coffee beans. He pointed to the drip-drop machine with his cereal spoon and said something unintelligible. His mouth was full. In addition to being full of bright, shining hope for the world and literary reverence for the brick-shaped man in his underpants on the other side of the counter, Artemis Kellogg was very much hungry after his long night of reading. Filling oneself with literary reverence was no easy job on the stomach. It left a great need for caloric nourishment, smartphone approval or not. I'll wait for you to get your coffee, but then I'm very eager to hear what you think, McGee said. He needed coffee himself, and was barely able to get that sentence out in the right order. Let's both have our coffee first. Then we'll talk book. Artemis Kellogg could have talked about the falling people right then and there. Hungry, tired, thirsty, drunk, or whatever. He was ready, but respectfully willing to wait. Whenever McGee wanted, he thought to himself. He watched the old man make use of the fancy coffee machine. It really wasn't all that hard to use. Water in here, coffee in there, flip a switch, and bazoom! Grinding, pouring, brewing. But Kellogg had low confidence for coffee-making in foreign territory without sleep. He was basically running on the equivalent of literary gasoline fumes. One thing about Kashi, of all the substances that contain protein, meat, fish, chicken, eggs, tofu, nuts, beans, and what have you, Kashi looks like none of these. There's really no clear sense of how it would hold protein. It's basically just a flaky, twigs and bits cereal. What did you expect? But somehow, these little pieces held the meaning of life, which was protein. Artemis Kellogg was feeling better already. And imagine what happened when he got that cup of good coffee that McGee had just brewed. Having been a writer and making his own coffee for much longer than Kellogg, as well as buying better beans and brewing machine, McGee could really make a superior cup. He had the finest organic cane sugar and fat-free half-and-half as well. How the half-and-half half could be fat-free, nobody knew. Somewhere in Northern California, I was drinking coffee myself. My daughter could sleep through the night now, but I kept right on waking up at 2 a.m. and couldn't fall back to sleep until about 3 o'clock. She had conditioned me to wake up in the middle of the night now. My brain cells were dying every time I did this. So it goes. I was tired. McGee pulled up a high bar stool and sat across the counter from Kellogg. He didn't eat breakfast anymore, not cereal or anything. His stomach was like an iron canteen, self-buffered for coffee at all times. 
The Kashi actually belonged to Sandy Sonnenfeld. McGee had no idea how it had gotten there. Well, McGee said, it's a good thing you're here. You'll write today, won't you? Kellogg smiled. He hadn't planned on writing. He thought he was on vacation, that he would do whatever the great writer suggested. He would bend to the man's instruction. After I sleep. Very well. So, McGee gestured to the coffee. Good? Kellogg nodded. Definitely. It's the same as with the book, you know. I've been making coffee for a long time. I've gotten good at it. Writing's the same way. Pay attention to your tools, your machine, clean it regularly, use good materials, take care of them, and you'll produce a good product, if you give it the time. I'm in the machine here, and the coach, and the athlete. I take care of myself, get plenty of sun. He waved toward the golf course outside. I walk around, get fresh air. I don't pickle my brain too much with alcohol or hurt my body. I keep at it. The coffee gets better. I feel good about the coffee, the brewing. By which I mean the writing. Now McGee pointed at the manuscript with his mug. Tell me, he said. Be honest. I'm ready. Kellogg pushed away his empty bowl. He got nervous all of a sudden. Here's why. He couldn't believe that one of his idols actually wanted to know what he thought about his new book. No one else had seen it yet, and this book would be seen and read by so many people, Kellogg thought. It was really that good. On the other hand, he didn't want to come off like a sycophant or a suck-up, a novice who couldn't be critical, or a nitpicking jerk who brought things up just to sound smart and then was totally annoying. He was in a bit of a tough spot. What can I say? Kellogg shrugged, then raised his mug and took a sip. It is very good coffee, he winked. And I've had some coffee. Maybe not a ton of coffee. Maybe I'm no connoisseur, but I know when I like a cup. This, that, he thumbed at the falling people. That is some very good coffee. I could drink a lot of it. I did. McGee smiled. It's a hard position I've put you in to be here and caught as my reader, yes? A bit. But this is okay. You have said something good. McGee got up and came around the counter. Picking up the book off the couch, he sat next to Kellogg with it. He tapped its first page. There was no cover page, just the title in italics above the book's first paragraph. This, he said, is what it needs to be, right? If I absolve you of any need to seem smart or critical or such things as a writer feels he needs to be as a reader, would you grant me that? As a reader, you enjoyed the read? Kellogg felt eased. I did, definitely. And will this help the cause of old Kurt Vonnegut, whom I feel I have a great debt to pay back? This man who wrote so many fine books, who helped me learn how to read and to love it, and then also learn to write and love that. Yeah, it will, or the committee can go ahead and bite me. McGee laughed at that, laughed long and loud like only an old writer can, even though he wasn't that old. For an old writer, he was actually quite young. But he had that booming laugh that made you think of Ernest Hemingway or Norman Mailer, or someone larger than life who only appeared on this earth in rare moments and generally told strangers to stand back and watch out. His laugh woke up both Sandy Sonnenfeld and Emily Plinko. 
even in the hacienda. They both wondered at the sound, then rolled over and fell back asleep. It was still too early. They had the right and the ability to make that decision for themselves. We have to take this to the committee, Kellogg said. In due time, in due time. We've got four days to get up to San Francisco now. It was Tuesday morning. Actually, three days now, don't you think? Give or take. And just then, that was when something very strange happened to Artemis Kellogg. Bainbridge McGee and Emily Plinko, too. Something that had never happened to any of them before. They suddenly came unstuck in time, just like Billy Pilgrim. The Tralfamadorians had nothing to do with it, either. Not that it was their fault when it happened to Billy. Coming unstuck in time just was. It had to be. And so on. Bainbridge McGee and Artemis Kellogg blinked once at McGee's kitchen counter, and suddenly they found themselves in the same place, but late Thursday night, really Friday morning, just a mere eight hours until the start of the meeting in San Francisco. And the drive from La Quinta normally would take somebody eight hours, at least. What was that? asked McGee. Kellogg looked around. The quality of light in the room had changed dramatically from an early morning gray-blue to an afternoon sunny desert heat flash. The clock on the microwave now read 1.45 a.m. Before, it had read 6.37. We just... Kellogg couldn't say anything else. Where's Emily? Emily Plinko walked into the kitchen in her pajamas. She had woken up at 1.40 a.m. from her own unsticking in time. She had a bit of a jump on the men. Now here she was. Sandy Sonnenfeld, the cougar, had woken up on Tuesday morning, just like the rest of the world. When she found the house empty, she had sunned herself on the patio and enjoyed the pool for several hours, then gone home. When she came back later and found the place still empty, she had assumed that the others went up to San Francisco early. She wasn't worried at all. As a cougar, she was very independent like that. Emily Plinko's hair looked more ruffled than usual. Time travel would do that to a woman. Are we? she said. Is it Tuesday? Her smartphone was telling her it was Friday, but she couldn't believe it. Only Kellogg and McGee, having become intimate with the falling people of late, had the idea of time travel in their minds. Emily Plinko should have had that idea in her mind from reading Slaughterhouse-Five, but her imagination wasn't such that she could see herself as a character in a novel. No, she wasn't a writer and therefore couldn't do this. It was a blessing, really. Not picturing yourself as a character in a novel was one of the blessings given to people in the world who were not fated to be writers. Good for them. Really. Shit, Kellogg said. He grabbed Emily Plinko's smartphone out of her hands and looked at its calendar app. Two things occurred to him right away. First, he had just missed three days of consuming calories, more or less. His smartphone would be very happy about this. Second, they only had a short time to get back out to San Francisco, and they would have to hurry to make it to the meeting without being fashionably late, dirty, disheveled, and entirely without sleep. Also, they still had to make at least three more copies of McGee's manuscript for the rest of the committee members to read. That could take almost an hour. We've got to go! Kellogg said. The time, the roads, the meaning. He jumped up and grabbed Emily Plinko's arms. They danced around in a panic. What, what will, will we, we do? do? They said. Artemis Kellogg was really worried about losing his status of champion committee member, or any committee member. 
Emily Plinko was really just freaked out that she had come unstuck in time. This was a very strange proposition to a normal girl from Mankato, Minnesota. McGee stood up and waved his hands. He knew the great Vonnegut's chances at winning the Damon Knight Memorial Grandmaster Award were on the line, but he stayed calm. Everyone be cool, he said. I have a solution. I know how we can get to San Francisco in time for the meeting. Emily Plinko and Artemis Kellogg stopped in their tracks. They both said, How? at the same time. Bainbridge McGee smiled. It was a smile that only Big Wynn had seen since 2007, the year that Kurt Vonnegut died. This special smile had only occurred twice since then, both times on the recent bender in Las Vegas. The first time was when McGee found an extra hundred dollars in his back jeans pocket the night they went to the Spearmint Rhino, a strip club. Man, did that hundred dollars up the ante, so to speak. Second time Big Wynn saw this smile, well, I really shouldn't tell you about that. I get kind of squeamish about those details, as you may remember. Nevertheless, here was that smile again, and this was what McGee said. I didn't tell you about the third thing my father gave me. I am now going to tell you about that third thing. He turned and waved from them to follow him. Come with me. He led them down the hall of his house, past the pictures of himself with famous authors, political figures, and Hall of Fame athletes, to the door onto the garage. Before opening it, he paused for effect. He wasn't trying to be dramatic on anyone else's account. He just had a moment of such excitement that it stopped him. The third thing my father gave me was... McGee opened the door to the garage and walked in. He flicked on the bright fluorescence. There was a big white van in the garage that Kellogg had noticed before. Now on the other side of the garage, he saw what was in the second bay, a low-to-the-ground car with a dark gray cloth over it. What's that? Kellogg asked. He was already starting to wonder if he would get to drive whatever it was. Such was his level of excitement. I give you, McGee said, pausing for effect again as he grabbed a corner of the cloth cover before whisking it off. The Troutmobile! As McGee pulled the cover off the car, he revealed the most spectacular possession that Kilgore Trout had ever owned. It was a gift to himself for winning the Nobel Prize in Medicine. He bought it in the final years of his life, years that were immeasurably happier once he owned it. This was what was under the cloth. A bright yellow, beautiful, shiny, 1979 Ferrari 308 GTS with the dual dual exhausts and the scooped out wind intake sections on the doors just like the one on that TV show from Artemis Kellogg's youth, Magnum P.I. Fucking cool, Kellogg said. Ditto and super awesome, said Emily Plinko. That is one hot car. Kellogg stood still. He asked, Do I get to drive that thing? I only drive golf carts, McGee said. Really? Really? Emily Plinko said it too. She couldn't believe this either, that someone would own a car like this and not drive it every chance they could. Is that a two-seater? Yes, McGee said. Really? And yes. Unfortunately, it is. Artemis Kellogg looked at Emily Plinko and Bainbridge McGee and did some fast mental math. 
The arithmetic of the car seats was not difficult. The hours they had left to drive back to San Francisco weren't either. But the first left him a little flat. Oh, he said. Oh, Emily Plinko said. You two will have another chance for a joyride, I promise, McGee said. Right now, this is about the award. He looked at his two guests and ran off into the house, calling behind him that they needed to get ready to leave. Kellogg walked around to look inside the car. He whistled. Emily Plinko came up next to him and took his hand. I'm okay with this, she said. What? Kellogg couldn't take his eyes from the light gray leather interior and the space-age dashboard. Even from back in 1979, it still looked like the future, a very well-made one. The actual color of this car, according to the good people at Ferrari, was fly yellow. Why? I wonder how fast this thing can go, he said. Then he felt Emily Plinko squeeze his hand. This brought his attention back to the space where he loved her. He had gone away from there for a moment. As a car like the 1979 Ferrari 308 GTS that Magnum P.I. drove can make a man do. Oh, he said. Emily Plinko repeated that she was okay with this. She was really being quite a trooper. Are you sure? She nodded. Can you take the Taurus back? She nodded again. Yeah, I can do that. I'll do it for the old men, Vonnegut and Trout and McGee. Then she squeezed Kellogg's hand again and weaked in him. And for you. Artemis Kellogg kissed her long and full on the mouth. With tongue. Bainbridge McGee came running back out of the house carrying a small gym bag of clothes and a box that held the print manuscript of the falling people. He opened the trunk of the Ferrari by releasing a small catch under the dash and put both items into the small compartment there behind the engine. Is that the engine for the thing? Is it in the back? I emailed the book to the committee, McGee said. He closed the trunk. Whatever small space it offered was now full. He turned to the two lovers. You ready to go? He looked at his watch. Meeting starts in eight hours, and I'd like to get a shower before. Wow, Kellogg said. Huh? Chop, chop, right now, please, McGee winked. Just kidding. But in a few minutes, okay? Artemis Kellogg and Emily Plinko went off to the hacienda to say a quick goodbye, with her reassuring him that he could use her smartphone to navigate herself home and that she and the Taurus would be just fine. This was when Kellogg came to understand why you never take a woman you love on a road trip to visit a half-crazy famous living author, especially not with an important meeting looming ahead of you in time. This was what could happen. You could come unstuck in time, have to race back to the meeting, and wind up driving home in a 1979 yellow Ferrari 308 GTS Magnum P.I. car with only two seats, forcing you to leave your loved one behind in the desert with your crappy Ford Taurus and 500 miles of lonely highway. And so on. They kissed. What more could Artemis Kellogg reasonably do? Well, thank you, Carlos. That is Carlos Mendoza on the read. That is chapters 27 and 28. There are three more chapters, likely one more episode after this. OMG. Maybe an episode and an epilogue, not sure. Kanye on the track there. He's clearly gone insane. You could either blame it on Kim Kardashian or Donald Trump. 
But actually, uh, this album dates to before either of those things happened in the world. So what can I tell you? Maybe he's been insane for a long time. It's only gotten worse. Go on YouTube and watch him in the Oval Office with Trump if you want confirmation of that. Oh, boy. Yeah. So here we are. November 2020. The election has been called for Joe Biden. Trump has not conceded. He is holding up the transfer of powers. People are protesting in D.C., thousands of them. They called for a million MAGA march, and they got a thousands of MAGA march. And who knows? This just in, breaking news from the internets. NBC News reporting Biden with 78 700,000, 78,700,000 and change votes in the popular vote. Trump with 73,122, 73,122,000. So it's a difference of roughly 5.6 million for Biden. NBC News, here's the crazy thing. NBC News has Biden with 306 electoral college votes. Associated Press has Joe Biden with 290 so there's states that they're still not agreeing on. Which states are those? We don't care. Oh, my God. We don't care. Oh. But even if we don't care, it's still pretty weird that there's a discrepancy between NBC News and the Associated Press at this point. So anyway, Kanye on the track, United States on the crazy, election results on the insanity... In so many ways, this year has been completely unprecedented. In my lifetime, for sure. I've only been around since 73. But I talked to my dad, who's been around since 35. 1935! He said that he hasn't seen anything like it. It's a crazy year. There was a huge pandemic at the end of the 1800s, like 1894. Then there was the Spanish flu, Black Plague, all kinds of craziness have happened in history, but in our lifetimes? You'd have to go back to the civil rights era of the late 60s to look at potentially uh, protests in the streets as much as we saw this summer. Plus, that kind of protest happening during a pandemic. All this to say, putting out a podcast during this situation in a place where my daughter... Uh, goes into an actual school building now four hours a week roughly and wasn't going at all for a really long time it's all really nuts it's really nuts how are you doing with all of this is this story helping i hope so i really um as i was dipping into the story today i i really like it i love um the pieces that are here um really like what I'm finding here of the story. <sighs> and it makes me remember when I wrote it. Writing it was great fun. And I want to get back to another place where I'm writing and feeling great fun. And at this stage, here's what I know. As much protein as an egg, the podcast will wrap up soon. I don't have any plans to podcast any more content on Patreon after that. Maybe I can see a way that I could release text-based writings on Patreon. 
or maybe even get Carlos to record some sort of newly written text stuff. But I don't know. This is all to say I don't know. 2020 is going to end. As much protein as an egg will wrap during 2020. 2021, who the heck knows? Who the heck knows? Part of me wants to spend more time writing. I don't know if that writing would look more like Young Junius, as much protein as an egg, the Maltese Jordans. I really don't know. Um, it's all tied up in what feels lucrative, what feels generative and um, heartfelt in terms of my own creative process. I don't know. I just know that I appreciate you being out there and listening. I'd love to hear from you. I value your support on Patreon and off Patreon, paying or not. I value your support through your ear time. It means a lot to me. I'd love to hear from you. I know that this audio of my intro and outro isn't as good as all the rest of the audio. And for that, big drum roll. I apologize. I hope you appreciate the old no-name bar. This is off of the Shaft soundtrack, as many of you may know. Uh, the beginning piece of the music is uh, the borderline thing, is a mix of Sade done by um, MF Doom. Doom from Mad Villain, which you guys know going way back, has been one of the Jack Palms favorites of all time. So this is him mixing Sade on an album collab that he did called Sade Villain. Sade Villain. We got some new sneakers in the house. We got lots of good stuff going on. I have a ton to be thankful for. A lot of blessings, a lot of privilege. I appreciate you for what you're giving that I'm thankful for. I hope that your Thanksgiving coming up will be a great one. Let's call this the Thanksgiving episode. I'll slap a picture of a turkey on it. You can email me your Thanksgiving pictures or Thanksgiving talk or whatever. Send an audio and I'll play it. If you want to do a Q&A about as much protein as an egg after the final episodes, we could do that. There's a lot of great things we could do. Oh, yeah. What a year, right? How are you holding up? got to be a mixed bag on some level right like there's been some good from it and a lot of craziness and it's hard it's hard on the physical body to endure this much stress trauma another song that i'd love to throw at you now is uh trauma by meek mill maybe i'll fade out on that as we go but i'm definitely going to talk through the rest of no name bar as always, back to the crime wave. Um, but yeah, I also think that if I'm talking about things that I really love and appreciate, it's fun to throw music at you while we do these podcasts. So I hope that you enjoy that. I hope that you've enjoyed this walk down music lane. And that's the end of No Name Bar. I'm going to go into Trauma by Meek Mill as I fade out. Wishing you lots of love, merriment, Great Thanksgivings to all of you and yours. Ours will be on Zoom for sure. 
Hope yours will be on Zoom and in person if you can. And I hope you're doing well. Seriously. All right. Lots of love. Take care. Harwood out. Here's the big dreamer. Uh, my mama used to pray that she'd see me in jail It's fucked up, she got to see me in jail On a visit with Lil Poppy and her Even though I seen it be well They got a smoker with a kid in my cell Damn, and even worse, my dad black Don't wanna see me do well It's either that or black people for sale Gave me two to four years like fuck your life Meet me in hell and let it burn like Lucifer You look even stupider Trying to press them people in power with power abusing us for $44 an hour, you coward, they using you Was it self-hate that made you send me upstate? This where the so-called real niggas sweeping up for cupcakes And that's your phone time You ain't got no money, you ain't online Can't call your son, call your daughter just to wish him on prime Oh God, don't let them streets get a hold of him Your daughter fucking now, it's gonna be a cold summer Your son trapping and your homie giving old to him And if he fuck that paper up, he putting holes to him And you just wanna make it home so you can show it to him And them people ain't finna get no parole to you, they want blood we all hanging with a noose on our neck My Sally mom just died, he wanna use my collect And he won't make it to the wake unless he give him a check We still niggas though, what you expect? I just won, I, just won. I was on the corner with the reef Then they got us one for our free See my brother blood on the plate How you wake up in the morning feeling evil? When them drugs got a hold on your mouth And the drugs got a hold on your mouth Trust, keep it at ease They shot that boy 20 times When they could've told him just freeze Could've put him in a cop car But they let him just bleed The ambulance ain't coming, baby, just breathe <sighs> That's what the old lady said when she screamed It's a nightmare on M Street Friday the 13th And in the 13th Amendment M said that we kings It said we legally slaves if we go to the bank They told cats stand up You wanna play for a team And all his teammates ain't saying a thing Stay woke. Stay if you woke. don't stand for nothing, you gon' fall for something. And in the 60s, if you kneel, you'll probably be killed. But they don't kill you now, they just take you out of your deal. Kill your account, look what money gets spilled. Check it. And they don't kill you now, they just take it out of your deal. Kill your account, look what money gets spilled. I just won. I, just won. I was on the corner with the reef. Then they got us one for our free. See my brother blood on the plate. How you wake up in the morning feeling evil? Send me to jail to know that I won't fail Invisible shackles on the king cause shit, I'm on bail I went from selling out arenas now shit, I'm on sale Them cold nights starting to feel like hell, uh Watching a black woman take my freedom Almost made me hate my people When they label you felon, it's like they telling you They not equal, 11 years going to court Knowing they might keep you or drive you crazy 23 hours in a cell, somebody saved me I'm on a jail car trying to explain it to my baby I gotta do the calendar twice and that's a maybe. Drama, drama, drama. I just won. I, just won. I was on the corner with the reef. And they got us one for our free. See my brother blood on the pen. How you wake up in the morning feeling evil? Huh, huh, huh. Drama, drama. When them 